Uh, Lord God, we are incredibly thankful for the abundant life that you give us and for the beautiful creation that you've put us in and for our ability to, to enjoy and share in all that you've created um, in worship of you and in fellowship with each other and in just experiencing the goodness that you have for humanity. God, we also recognize that um, you call all people to you and that there are many who will not respond to that call. And your scriptures, we acknowledge, speak of a place called hell, which is the place for those who reject your gospel. Uh, God, help us to understand this idea. It's immensely important, and we recognize that, God, because your scriptures and your son speak of it often. God, our goal today is that we would be able to understand what your word says with clarity, and that we, God, would, would set aside um, any traditions that aren't biblical, any well-wishing that we would have, sentimental thoughts that aren't biblical, that we could have an accurate understanding of what your plan is in regard to hell. I pray, God, that you would help me to speak clearly and with sincerity, uh, giving honor to you and being consistent with your scriptures. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we, uh, I'm just, we're just going to kind of jump right in because uh, we've got a lot of work to do here this morning. So there are just some inescapable textual realities. One of them is the existence of hell um, and the final judgment of all created things, okay? All created things in terms of beings, uh, visible beings, humanity, invisible beings, the angels and demons that we have been speaking about as we've gone through Revelation. Now, I'm going to utilize slides a little bit more today because I am after an extreme amount of clarity, okay? There are three prominent views of hell, okay? So when I say hell, um, it is the place where people go at the time of judgment. We're going to look at judgment next week, but I wanted this to go into judgment, the judgment of God, the final judgment, the, it's called the great white throne judgment. I wanted this to be clear on what the end of judgment meant before we looked into judgment itself. It might be a little backwards, uh, but that's what I've decided to do. So hell is a, a place for those who reject God, it's where they go. All right, and we'll get into more details as we go through. There are three views in contemporary uh, Orthodox Christianity about the nature and the place of hell. Uh, the first one is that hell is an eternal conscious torment. This is the traditional view. This is the, the picture of hell being a place where people go uh, it may be a lot of fire, it, that may be a metaphor, it may just be a, intense spiritual and psychological agony, uh, but the consistent belief in eternal conscious torment is that it is never-ending, it goes on for eternity, there's no way to be rescued from it once you go there, it is eternity of suffering, okay? That's eternal conscious torment, the traditional view. 
All of these views have been held by church leaders since the early church, like, like the 200s and 300s, okay? So these, all of these views are, are, they've been around for centuries, okay? This is the predominant one, the eternal conscious torment. The second one is what is called Christian universalism. Now, I want to distinguish Christian universalism from pluralistic universalism. Pluralistic universalism is uh, like Oprah. Uh, Everybody is going to heaven regardless of what you believe or what you do, all right? Just kind of this feel-good pluralism. Everybody will be in heaven. Nobody's going to hell. There's not even a hell, all right? Christian pluralism, which we'll, again, we're going to explain these in detail. Christian pluralism is the belief that Christ died for the sins of everyone, which eventually saves everyone, okay? All right, so it's a belief that Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is still the atoning uh, reality that everyone will come to accept. We'll get into the details of these again later. The last one is called conditional immortality or annihilationism, annihilationism, <laughs> um, or what is some refer to as terminal punishment. And this idea is that um, a person that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross uh, and they reject the gospel uh, come to face judgment and then are destroyed. Right? It's, it's literally death forever. Right? There's not eternal conscious torment. They're not alive to experience suffering for eternity. A person is just destroyed for eternity. Okay? That's, you kind of get the three. Again, they've been around for centuries. These are the three dominant ideas in, in Orthodox Christianity. When I say Orthodox Christianity, there's an affirmation that, that Christ's work on the cross, his death and resurrection, have paid for sins. All right, now, there are three real relevant passages in Revelation. Um, I don't have any self-deprecating comments in this message. This is a serious message, and I, I, I think you probably can feel the, the serious tone. Um, I mean, I realize I'm kind of lean towards the serious side all the time, but this is a really serious message. All of us, um, all of us, and maybe some of you here, um, are people that we, we have known people, or maybe, again, some of you here maybe have not accepted the gospel. We've known people that have not accepted the gospel, and they have died, all right? And that their eternal state is really important. How we think about that is, is really important. Um, anyway, three primary passages that cover most of what Revelation says about hell. And we're going to also look at a few other passages that refer to it. We're not going to get into the Gospels, which have a lot about hell as well. But we're going to look at these, these passages out of Revelation and then the informing passages in the Old Testament that Revelation is drawing upon. So the first one is Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's a very heavy passage. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them and was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And the final passage out of Revelation is chapter 20, verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We'll hit some of these passages in detail as we look at the three views, okay? I'm, I'm trying to put about you could easily have a weekend conference on this with, you know, three plenary sessions and a bunch of breakouts. So I'm trying to do a very succinct overview. All right, now, so these three passages all refer to this lake of fire and sulfur that seemingly burns forever. The images of the fire and sulfur that John is drawing upon as he writes Revelation and as the Holy Spirit is leading him to write come out of the Old Testament, particularly two passages. The first one is the, is the narration of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were two cities that were altogether evil, and the only people that weren't ultimately characterized by evil in those two cities uh, were Lot and his family, his wife and his children and their, their uh, fiancés. So um, God told Abraham and he was going to bring judgment upon these two cities. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace." And so we have fire and sulfur, and we have the smoke arising from it, which is that imagery out of chapter 14 in Revelation. The other passage that Revelation draws upon is Isaiah chapter 34, 8 through 10. Now, Isaiah was a prophet to Israel in its, in its latter days um, and, and uh, spoke not only against the nation of Israel for its, its disobedience to the law and its disobedience to God and its uh, worship of false gods, but Isaiah was also bringing uh, judgment upon the other nations of the world, particularly those who were cruel to the nation of Israel. 
And so Isaiah says this in regard to the um, nation of Edom, which came out of Jacob's brother Esau, right? For the Lord had a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So he's taking vengeance. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. All right, so these are the, the um, primary passages behind the images and the language in Revelation um, about hell. And so, first of all, what is, what is hell? First and foremost, and we'll see this in a, in a in, we're going to look at a, a passage out of Thessalonians in a bit to address one of these, these views. And we're going to see real clear that it's a separation from God. First and foremost, it is complete separation from God, God being the source of all life everywhere. So it is a complete separation from life. Second, it is a place of anguish and torment characterized by suffering, unrest, and anxiety. Now, almost all scholars, regardless of the view they hold about hell, believe that the metaphors uh, or the images of fire and sulfur are just metaphors. All right, um, there, it, hell isn't really a place characterized by intense heat and burning for eternity. All right, it is some sort of anguish and pain and suffering. And if you consider that the devil, who is invisible, all right, he is a spirit being, is thrown into the lake of fire for torment. He does not have a body. Okay, so. The devil, who the scripture says will be tormented forever and ever, will be tormented at a place where he can experience torment, uh, and because he doesn't have a physical body, he, he can't, it's not something that he can experience in a physical way. All right, so unequivocally across the board, most scholarship, regardless of the view, the, the images of fire and sulfur are metaphors, uh, but it, it, they, they certainly reflect um, pain and anguish and torment and suffering, all right? If you look at the passage that we looked at earlier, chapter 14, where it says, and they will have no rest day or night, I think the best way to think about it uh, is just uh, mental, psychological, and spiritual anxiety, torment, there's never any peace, okay? That's what hell is. It is suffering, it is torment. The big question is how long? That's the big question. All right, so the three views. Again, we are going to blast through these, okay, and not give them the time they really deserve. And I'll recommend a couple books at the end if you want to study further. And obviously we'll have a Q&A time. First one, eternal conscious torment. Okay, like I said, it is the belief that, well, here, I actually have a little definition here. Unbelievers... Those that reject the gospel, unbelievers are condemned to eternal conscious torment in hell 
to pay for their sin as a consequence of loving their sin and rejecting their gospel. Right? So it's eternal conscious torment, and that eternal conscious torment is payment for their sin and their rejection of Christ. Right? They didn't accept Christ's atonement. They didn't accept Christ's payment for their sin. So they're paying for their sin for eternity in hell. Okay, that's view one. Now, let me just explain some of the assumptions. The first is that the word forever always means forever. That's one of the assumptions. Eternity always means unending, okay? Um, Which seems like that makes sense, but that's an assumption. Okay, we're going to look at some contradictions to that in the third view. But that's, an, I just want, I'm explaining to you the positions, okay? There's an assumption that all people, body and soul, live eternally. So when you're born, you will never die, right? You're either going to live eternally in the kingdom of God after your physical death, or you're going to live eternity in hell after your physical death and after judgment, okay? That's an assumption. Those, so forever means forever all the time. Eternity means eternity all the time. And everybody lives forever regardless of, your, of the judgment that's been put upon you. Now, if you look at just the texts, I wanna just raise a couple challenges to it. If you look at like chapter 14 where it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and they shall have no rest day and night, what is actually going on forever? The smoke of their torment. It doesn't say that the people are being tormented forever. It says that the smoke is going up forever. Now if you, lo- if you think back to the Isaiah passage about Edom, okay, Edom was going to be judged with fire and with sulfur and burning pitch, which is tar, and the smoke would go up forever. Now, Edom was destroyed. Edom was destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, was dest- they were destroyed, and Abraham went out the second day, and what did he see? He saw smoke. And the passage says that the smoke is going to come up from Edom forever and forever. Edom is no longer smoking. Like right now, you can go to the physical place on the planet, Middle East, somewhere. It's not smoking anymore. And usually what these passages were referring to was that the destruction would be so total And the judgment of God would be so complete on these cities, these places, these nations, these people, is that there would be nothing alive to come from it ever again. And that's the idea that the smoke rising forever generates. It would never be rebuilt. It would always be destroyed. So it doesn't say that the people are being tormented forever. It says the smoke from their torment 
will go up forever. Meaning that there's going to be, there's destruction. But the passage doesn't necessarily say that the destruction is a always going on destruction. The other challenge is that um, eternal conscious torment seems inconsistent. It seems that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. 70 or 80 years of sin leads to an eternity of punishment. Now, if that's what God wanted to do, God is fully within his right to do it. And the other more strong argument or challenge against eternal conscious torment is that there is no teaching in Scripture on the immortality of humans. Nowhere does it teach in Scripture that human beings live forever. And then it says that, that only God, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, only God is immortal. And if you look, think back to the story in Genesis chapter 3. Remember God made man and woman. He put them in the garden. There was a garden and had the tree of life. And it had a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if they ate of it, they would die. They would die. When they were in the garden eating the tree of life, they would live. And remember when they they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it brought death upon them. And at that point, they started to die. They They were experiencing death. Uh, sin, guilt, shame, fear, separation from each other, separation from God, all of these things are characteristic of what it meant to die. And God gave the judgments to the snake and to the man and to the woman. And then he is speaking to, you know, God talks to himself. It's because he's existing as a plurality, three in one trinity. We see him talking to himself since chapter one. He says, Let us remove man and woman from the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, and live forever. God did not want man and woman to exist in a state of death forever. And the indication is that they could have. If they would have stayed in the garden as dead humans, right, dying humans, If they would have stayed in the garden, they could have eaten of the tree of life and lived forever dying. Live forever dying. There's no teaching in Scripture that teaches humans are immortal. Now, that's that's a traditional view that everybody lives forever. It's not a biblical understanding. It's not a biblical understanding. Second view, universalism. We're going to wrap these kind of up at the end. So I I know I threw some things out there and probably have questions. It's good. We'll hit them. Christian universalism. Unbelievers are sent to hell for their love of sin and their rejection of the gospel until they eventually repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and enter into his kingdom. So Christian universalists believe that there are those who believe in the gospel before they die and they will enter into the kingdom of God without going through hell. 
But they also believe that if you die not having believed in the gospel, but having rejected Christ, you enter into hell, and you're in hell until you repent. So you're existing, you're under torment, you're under suffering, but you can always come to this place of saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to quit this hell gig and I'm going to go to heaven and believe in Jesus, right? Now, so that's what universalists, Christian universalists believe. And the foundational text, or one of the foundational texts, I would say this is the primary one, is Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 17 through 20, and you're, if you'll be familiar with it if you've been through our house church studies, it's the passage that says that that it was the goodwill of the Father to reconcile all things to himself, all things in heaven and on earth, through his Son and the Son's death on the cross. Everything in heaven and on earth has been reconciled to the Father through Christ's work on the cross. And the, so on the, on the face of it, it looks like Christ died and was born and was resurrected from the dead, and that, and that created peace between God and every being, every human being and every angelic being, even the devil, even the devil. Now, again, that's what it looks like on face value, but if you, if you go down a few verses to chapter, to verses 21 through 23, Paul says, and you used to be hostile to God, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you through his blood in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, the him being the Father. But then there's a condition placed upon it. The condition is that he says, if you indeed remain steadfast in your faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel in which you've believed. All right? The passage doesn't teach an across-the-board reconciling of all things at that moment, meaning that everything is now saved, everything is now going to be able to enjoy the presence of God. It is this, it is this idea that, that Christ has, and there's, there are many verses that say Christ has died for the sins of the world. Right? Christ's death on the cross had to cover all of the sins of the world. It covered the sins of those who would repent and believe in the gospel prior to them dying. And it, and it created the conquering power that God has over Satan, sin, and death. And in that power judged and destroyed them all right so the work on the cross takes care of all sin it takes care of it through a peace treaty with those who humble themselves before christ and accept his terms which is that you believe in the gospel and that jesus christ is lord and that he's paid for your sins and he is and and so that's one way the other way is the other way of creating peace is by destroying your enemy they either surrender or they are destroyed. And, and the scriptures are clear, and we looked at last week, Jesus' destruction of Satan, sin, and death occurred through his death and resurrection. And so through that power, 
it has reconciled all things, which will ultimately lead to the point where there will no longer be any Satan's sin or death or evil. All things will be at peace through the blood of the cross. And so the, the passages used to defend Christian universalism are, it's, it's weak Bible study. And I think even the stronger, rather than going at the, at the individual passages, the stronger argument, through, as you read through Old Testament and New Testament, there is never an argument that gives hope for the enemies of God. There just isn't, there's not a, there's not a, there's not a, a, a book or a passage or a text that's developing this idea that you can be an enemy of God and yet, you'll, and yet someday, even after death, repent and believe in Jesus. It, there's just no teaching on it. There's no argument or passage for it. The third view is conditional immortality. Unbelievers are condemned to hell for their love of sin and their rejection of the gospel, where they will be tormented for a limited time to pay for their sin and ultimately be destroyed. All right, so there's live their life, reject the gospel, love their sin, they face judgment, and at the judgment, again, which we'll look at next week, that moment of the great white throne judgment, they are condemned to hell where at some point, after their sin is atoned for through their suffering, they are destroyed, and that destruction lasts for eternity. Now, let's look at this word forever, because that is really a lot of where the argument rests in these passages. Does forever always mean forever? Again, the assumption, one of the assumptions of the uh, traditional view, which is eternal conscious torment, is that forever always means forever. Well, let's look at, well, if you look at, there's a whole list of them, but, and we're not going to read them all. Exodus chapter 29, verses 8 through 9. This is when God is establishing the priesthood for Aaron and his sons. Remember, I mean, if you're familiar with Exodus, God called Israel out of Egypt, and he was going to set them up as their own nation with their own land. And they uh, built a, a tabernacle, and the presence of God dwelled in the nation of Israel in this tabernacle. And then there were priests established. That they, and they would enter into the presence of God, only the high priest could once a year. And then the priests were responsible for the sacrifices and, and all of the affairs of the tabernacle and of the worship of the nation of Israel. Throughout the text, when you look at the instructions that, Moses, that God gave to Moses and that Moses gave to, to the priests, it says repeatedly, and this will be an established uh, ordinance or an established practice or an established priesthood forever and forever. The Sabbath, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't work on Saturday. The Sabbath day. I will provide for you. You can take some rest and enjoy my rest. And it says this will be a covenant between me as God and you as a nation forever and forever. And you see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Well, both the priests, I mean, even in the plan of God, 
Christ would eventually come and be the final high priest. And Christ isn't from the line of Aaron. There is no Sabbath day, which is the argument out of the book of Hebrews. Why? Because Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath. There's no practicing of the Sabbath day for the people of God. So even with these things in God's plan for Israel that he would say would last forever and ever, they don't last forever. The idea is that the, the, the Greek term, and we don't probably have a really great translation for the term used in the original languages, either in the Hebrew or in the Greek, that's comprehensible to us unless we kind of broaden our understanding. The word forever, the word for eternity, or the word for everlasting, it's the same term, and if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, so you have some consistency between the old and the new in a common language, it's the same term, the same terms are used, it can mean eternity, or it can mean ongoing until it's done. And that would be an, ex- that would be an example of, of these. And, and Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 17, um, they had slavery in the nation of Israel, but eventually the slaves would have to be released. But it was possible for the slaves to say, hey, you know what, I really like my owner. They're taking really good care of me. I would just like to be a permanent slave in this household. And if that was the case, they would get, this, they would get a, a, some sort of an earring that would specify that they were slaves of this family. And then the text says, and they will be a slave in the house forever and forever. <laughs> well, what it meant is that as long as the slave is alive and as long as there is a family, that slave would be in that household. Does that make sense? It is another way of understanding that word. We just read the word eternity and we see this, this one singular narrow view, or forever and forever, or everlasting upon everlasting. When there's a range of ways to understand the term, and the term has to be defined in terms of its context, in terms of its context. So eternal things can be, there are two things, two ways of seeing this, if something is going to last for eternity, okay, if two things are going to last for eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, and never stop, there are two ways of even understanding that. One is that an action can occur and the consequences of that action are eternal. The other way of understanding it is that you can have an action that is eternally ongoing. Okay? And that's important because when we come to, when we come to the clearest passage, all right, if you are looking for clarity on, on anything, <laughs> to start with revelation, eh, it is so, super hard to establish doctrine out of revelation. There are very few like doctrines that you should establish out of revelation simply because it's really not intended to do that. All right? It's hard to do that out of narratives and like the Gospels. Because Jesus talks about hell and Gehenna and how at that time it was like a, um, what we would consider a toxic waste dump. That's what Jesus called hell. It was this place that was a toxic waste dump for the nation of Israel where they would bury uh, 
throw out dead people and throw out like criminals that they didn't want to go through the burial process with, trash. It was just a toxic waste dump. And that's what Jesus called hell. Epistles, letters, that's where you want to begin to start establishing doctrine. And this is Paul's clearest teaching. In fact, I would say it's, it's, it's probably the, I think it's the New, New Testament's clearest teaching on what happens to those who reject the gospel. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God because the Thessalonians were under persecution from their neighbors. So Paul says this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. All right, so all of those crazy images in Revelation, Paul sums up like in a half a verse. When Jesus comes back with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, okay, Jesus is burning, nobody else in this passage, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction. Now, if you're from a traditionalist view, the judge that eternal destruction is ongoing. God is eternally destroying. All right? Which I would say is inconsistent with the Revelation imagery because the smoke, Old Testament, New Testament, seems to be a consequence of a destroying event, right? It's not the fire that they're seeing going on forever and ever. It's the smoke that seems to go on forever and ever. Old or New Testament. And so... God to be eternally destroying seems inconsistent, but it's an option. Or it could be God destroys and that destruction is eternal. There's a single event of destruction and that destruction is eternal. They are never to come alive again, which is the imagery behind Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the imagery behind Edom, never to come alive again. So, I think you can get, from my vantage point, it seems to be the most biblical. Now, I, I believe that we've got every, I believe we have all three views represented in the church here today. I think we've got traditionalists that believe in eternal conscious torment, and that's where I was, to be honest with you. That was my belief up until a few months ago. I believe we have people here that hold to Christian universalism, that, that, that Christ's death and resurrection will save everybody, even those who repent after they die. And I think we have people here that believe in, in um, conditional immortality or annihilationism. Uh, I believe that the text, and again, we, lots more to read. I've, I've been studying for a month on this sermon and I have some books I'd recommend. There's a book that just came out. It's the second edition. It's called Four Views on Hell. It is an excellent book. Four people write 
uh, for the perspective, and then the other three counter their chapter. So that's like one chapter on eternal conscious torment, three rebuttals. One chapter on universalism, three rebuttals. One chapter on um, annihilationism or conditional immortality, and then three rebuttals. And the fourth view, which really isn't on hell, is it's purgatory. Okay, we won't go, I'm not, we're not getting into that because it really shouldn't have been a part of the book. But, um, and so I would strongly recommend that book. I read the whole thing. I think it presents uh, each case, well, each case is represented by somebody who is considered one of the best scholars for that view. Um, the, another, another book that really is kind of considered the definitive text is... Um, it's a book by a man named Fudge, and I, I can't remember the title. <laughs> anyway, um, I've come to the point where I believe conditional immortality or annihilationism or um, terminal punishment, a punishment that ends, I think it's the most biblical view. I think it's the most biz- biblical view because... Um, well, several reasons. I think that the biblical texts, I mean, destruction means destruction. And there is no teaching that people live forever. I could go on on a few more items. We've covered them all. But whatever your view might be, whatever your view might be, what is important to see is that in all of them, the heart is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is what atones for sin. And that's really what we got to come back to, regardless of your view of hell. Or if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, what you may believe about hell or don't believe about hell, all three of them are, are not good. They're not good. Whether I think of somebody suffering eternally in pain that's hard for people that I know that don't know Jesus or that, I, that have died not knowing Jesus. It's hard for me to think about. Super, that's the hardest of the three, obviously. But the second one, the second one, it, it doesn't have the, the, the cringe value or the hardness of the eternal conscious torment perspective. To me, the second view in terms of like conditional immortality or people that don't, they're just destroyed, there's a sadness that overwhelms me. When I think about loved ones, it's ceasing to exist. I would rather them cease to exist than suffer eternal conscious torment. That's, that's sad, but also somewhat angering and somewhat just really frightening. And if that's what God chose to do, he's God, and I am, as the clay pot, I don't tell the potter what to do, to use Paul's metaphor in Romans 9. Um, but, and then, but universalism, you could be in hell for a really long time before you come to repentance. And even though it may not be sulfur and fire and brimstone, uh, psychological anguish and anxiety that never ends? All of us have that to some degree right now. But there's an end. So I would appeal to you. If you're here and you have not 
known God or accepted the gospel to consider that you have 70 or 80 years at best and then we'll die and face some sort of judgment in hell. I believe it will be that you will just cease to exist unless you let Jesus Christ take your sin upon his own shoulders and let him die for you. And let God, let God forsake him rather than God forsake you because God did forsake him, but he rose to life. And that is the promise for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord God, these are hard passages. But again, as Spurgeon said, hard passages create soft hearts. So God, I pray that, that the text here today would um, make soft hearts. Soft hearts, God, to believe in your gospel if we have not believed. Soft hearts, God, to be compassionate towards the lost and those who don't believe um, so that we could love them better because this is a fate that we should not wish upon anybody. In Christ's name, amen.